0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
1: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Deblina Chakravorty, and I'm Sarah Dowdy. And the subject of royal pretenders is one that just really continues to fascinate and intrigue the both of us. In March, we covered Lambert Simnel, who was pretender to the English throne at the young age of ten. But, here's the thing, while he and his supporters may have given Henry VII cause for concern, Simnel never actually became king. But for the royal pretender we're going to look at here, it was a really different story. Tsar Dmitry, who's commonly known as False Dmitry I, not only usurped the Russian throne in 1605, he also gained the widespread support of people across all classes in Russia, while pretending to be the son of none other than Ivan the Terrible.
2: So he did it. He's not just a pretender. He, he really made it happen. But we're going to be calling him False Dmitry I. But just so we can avoid any confusion right off the bat, there were actually two other false Dimitris who weren't quite as successful as this first one. And we're going to talk about both of them too. But first, before things get too complicated, we need to set up this story a little bit and talk about who the real Dimitri was, leaving those other three false guys out of the picture for the moment and also try to figure out why somebody would try to pretend to be him in the first place.
1: Before we take a look at those questions, though, we've really got to take a look at 16th century Russia, or the end of the 16th century, at least. As the 16th century was drawing to a close, the old dynasty of the Grand Princes of Moscow, or the Rurik dynasty, was coming to an end. Tsar Ivan, better known as Ivan the Terrible, died in 1584, and though he'd had a number of wives, countless lovers, and many, many children, he really didn't have that many options for an heir partly his own fault, too. Right. So this is what happened. Many of the legitimate children that he had turned out to be sickly and they didn't survive Ivan. As for the illegitimate ones, it's said that Ivan would actually suffocate them with his own hands to make sure that there wasn't a power struggle after he died. Ironically, a power struggle does still develop. That's very true. There were two sons left after Ivan died, Theodore and Dmitri. Theodore was the older one and he actually became czar after Ivan's death. He wasn't a very... Effectives are though. Some sources suggest that he may have actually had some sort of mental disability, or at the very least was ill-suited to ruling a country.
2: So somebody else had to step in, his wife's brother Boris Godinov, who basically governed for him, and before his death, Ivan even named Godunov as Fyodor's guardian. So it's the start of trouble, raising this, this man to a very high, very powerful position, because Godunov had a lot of power now, and it seemed like maybe he would be the next in line for the throne. And there was still that other son, though. So this is where things get complicated. Dimitri, uh, Ivan's other legitimate child. But at this point, he was just a little boy. So he didn't seem to be a, a real contender here as a successor to Feodor.
1: Yeah. Also, it might have been tough to prove Dimitri's legitimacy because he was the son of Ivan's seventh or maybe eighth wife, depending on what source you look at. And I think something like after the third wife, the kids weren't really Really considered legitimate, so that caused a problem anyway, but he still would have had a claim. So that's probably why Dimitri and his mother were exiled to Uglich after Ivan's death. But the boy died there in 1591, around age 8 or 10. And of course, there are mysterious circumstances involved. It wouldn't be a good pretender story unless there were some mysterious circumstances (laughs) here. Or just a
2: Russian royal childhood story. So some people said that the death was natural, although natural doesn't even really sound very good. He supposedly stabbed himself during an
1: epileptic seizure. Yeah, you have to wonder why an 8 to 10-year-old boy is holding A knife, anyway? Yeah, that was my
2: first question and how he managed to stab himself with it. But there you go. That's the one potentially natural solution. However, though, there was also a rumor that it was Godunov who had had the child murdered, which. Seems kinda likely too, this, this power hungry guy who does step in after this kid is out of the way. But regardless of what the truth was here, Dimitri was now out of the picture, and since Fyodor had a wife and only one daughter, Feodosia, who died as an infant. This really left the door wide open for Godunov to step up and take the throne himself.
1: Yeah, and incidentally, some suspected Godunov's involvement in Feodosia's death too. So we should mention that. But sure enough, after Feodor's death in 1598, Godunov was elected to the throne by popular assembly. But Tsar Boris, as he's often known, didn't have an easy go of it at all.
2: We shouldn't make it seem entirely like he just came in there and claimed the throne for himself, too. He was elected to his position, but not everyone was a fan of the new Tsar Boris. In particular, the bowyers, who are basically... Old aristocratic families, upper nobility, they were specifically opposed to him. And out of all of these old families, the Romanovs especially, really didn't like Tsar Boris. And part of that is because they thought they had a better claim to the throne. Tsar Fyodor's mother, Ivan the Terrible's first wife, Anastasia, had been a Romanov. So the family thought that through through her and through their relation to the latest Tsar, they had a pretty good claim.
1: So Tsar Boris needed a way to deal with these rivals of his. And what he did is in 1600, he sent them all, he arrested them. He arrested all the Romanov brothers and sent them all out of Moscow. That wasn't the end of Tsar Boris's troubles, though, either. Soon other social classes weren't really happy with him. Though some sources refer to Tsar Boris as an intelligent and capable ruler who did things like reforming the judicial system and sending students to be educated in Western Europe. He also had the misfortune of being on the throne to during a terrible famine that lasted from about 1601 to 1603. The harvest failed all those summers, three successive summers. And Zarborus really didn't deal with this effectively at all. It hurt his reputation and destabilized his regime.
2: Yeah, so there was this idea floating around that Tsar Boris wasn't a true Tsar at all. These economic problems, these social conflicts that were all coming to a head, even the famine, it was all kind of his fault. And this, combined with Dimitri's premature death, opened the door for pretenders. So new guys could come in and, and the stage was set for for some kind of revolution.
1: It was. And then in 1603, at the height of this crisis in Russia, a young man appeared in Poland, Lithuania, and presented himself to Prince Adam and other nobles there as the Tsarevich Dmitry, the youngest son of Ivan the Terrible and the true heir to the Russian throne. Wait a minute. I know. What's going on He's here? He's supposed to be dead. He's supposed to be dead. So here's how Dmitry explained himself. He told people that Godunov had sent hired assassins to kill him in but Back in 1591, so what was rumored to have happened did happen. Godunov had tried to have him killed, but his tutor had saved him, or so Dmitri claimed, by cleverly substituting another boy for Dmitri, and that boy was killed instead of him.
2: So, sounds like a pretty interesting story. And according to an article in History Today by Marine Perry, this new Dmitry, who did receive an audience with the Polish king in 1604, had some, had some proof for all of these tall claims. For one, he was recognized, supposedly, by Russian exiles who claimed to have known the boy. You know, that's not it's not too hard to believe there. Some people would have definitely been familiar with his face, might have been able to recognize him. But he also displayed so-called royal birthmarks, and we're not sh- quite sure yeah, what we, that we, means. We we're trying to figure out what that meant. What what makes a royal birthmark? Or I don't
1: know—is it especially large or like shaped like a crown? Or or is
2: it just as I, I don't simple don't as maybe they knew Dmitri had some specific birthmark and look, there it
1: is. But or maybe the family all had the same birthmark. Something. He Anyways,
2: he has the royal birthmark. So he's good there. And then he also had a jeweled cross that was allegedly given to him by his godfather. So the Polish are sold on this and they have pretty good reason to, to be sold after Dmitry even converted to Catholicism in Krakow. So now he's sort of entering their fold and they're getting their new friend Dmitry or hoping to get their new friend Dmitry on the Russian throne, which offered some really exciting possibilities for the expansion of Poland's influence into, uh, into Russia and the Vatican's reach as well.
1: So backed by these Lithuanian and Polish nobles and some Jesuits, too, and with a newly gathered army of Cossacks and adventurers, this false Dmitry invaded Russia in October 1604. And he had some initial victories. He did all right at first. He attracted followers, especially in southern Russia, and he won some towns in that region in which the townspeople overthrew their governors in favor of him. And most of his supporters were Cossacks, townspeople, peasants, and bondsmen. In general, though... False Dmitry was defeated militarily until Tsar Boris suddenly dies in April of 1605. Then the government army shifted its support to Dmitry. A game changer. It was. They didn't want to swear allegiance to Tsar Boris's son, Theodore. So after the army has switched allegiances, then there's a popular uprising against the Godunovs that leads the boyars to also think, hey, we want to switch over too. So they murder Boris's son and his wife. And false Dmitry arrives triumphantly in Moscow in June 1605 and is proclaimed Tsar with all the support of all sections of Russian society.
2: So he made it. I mean, I know we already told you he would in the introductions but I still feel like you sort of don't see that coming. He actually... He's a pretender who makes it happen. So Tsar Dmitri is on the throne, but we still have no idea who this guy really is. Tsar Boris had accused him of being one Grigory Atrepiev, who was a member of the gentry who was linked to the House of the Romanovs and later became a monk in what was pretty much the most prestigious monastery in Moscow at the time. But Boris had accused Atripeev of being a renegade type of monk who Dabbled in things like sorcery and was in league with Satan, never a good thing for. For a no month. that's about the worst <laughs> yeah. thing that you can do <laughs> and um, other accounts though sort of painted a different picture they had him standing in in good standing at the monastery and uh, he rose in the ranks remarkably quickly there and and just sort of had a,
1: a good reputation so what's interesting is that many historians also think that false dimitri was a tripiev and this is probably the most prevalent theory that's out there right now but some people think that there are some some critics of this theory I should say think that there are some timing issues with this, that's one criticism that they have, that throw it into question. For example, the monk might have actually been too old to pass for Dimitri. We don't actually have any birth records of him, so although people say that they were around the same age, we don't actually know that that's true. So there are some flaws in this theory, and according to a piece by Chester Dunning in the Slavic Review, one thing that many scholars agree on is that whoever false Dimitri really was, he must have been raised from childhood to believe that he was really dead. Dimitri, because he played the role so convincingly. So I find that really interesting, because you think about pretenders, and I don't know, I think I often assume that it's just like a decision they make, and then the next year, they're pretending to be this person. A
2: political decision or a decision of ambition, almost.
1: Right, but this might have been more of a long-term plan.
2: It's the ambition of somebody else, presumably, some older person who's who's grooming this young man, or young boy even, to to eventually take a place. It, it reminded me again of the Lambert Simnel episode.
1: Exactly. Although what's interesting in Dimitri's case is that there there have been a small number of researchers over the years who have pursued the possibility that Zarovich Dimitri really did survive as a young child, and that maybe this was the real Dimitri. False Dimitri was the real Dimitri. Yeah, I mean, there were some things... Um, uh, that they point to like irregularities with the child's burial they waited for a long time to bury him so maybe the bodies were swapped or something like that um so who knows it's a good one but in general most people believe that he was in fact an imposter but he didn't act like one when he got on the throne well and that would
2: also explain being raised from a very young age to to truly believe that he was the the Tsarevich. But although some consider him to be the puppet of Polish nobles who supported him, several sources really paint false Dmitry as a, quote, extremely intelligent and resourceful leader, or a well-educated for a Russian Tsar, or well-versed in statecraft, advanced in his thinking and reform-minded, and even possessing a, quote, lively, even passionate temperament. So, Sounded like a lot of people were pretty pleased with what they got, even if, even if the circumstances behind this young man coming to the throne were unusual to say the least. Seemed like he did a pretty good job once he was there.
1: Or at least, he doesn't seem like a total puppet. A decent job. Richard Helley even described Dimitri as quote, one of the few really enlightened rulers Russia has ever had. And Dunning notes that some scholars have seen Dmitry as a forerunner to Peter the Great. Some of the things that Tsar Dmitry accomplished, in case you're interested, he lowered the tax burden and labor demands of the time. He also made plans for promoting education and science in Russia, and he worked to promote the effectiveness of the Russian army.
2: Unfortunately though, or at least unfortunately for false Dimitri, he didn't have that much time to, to accomplish all of these things. Having a mind of his own really turned out to be his detriment and he angered a lot of people, especially a lot of these, these nobles who weren't too too into it in the first place, you know what I'm saying? So one of the things he did that really angered a lot of people was that early conversion to Catholicism. He also married the daughter of a Polish Catholic nobleman named Marina, which really even further strengthened that connection.
1: But he also did some other things that would have maybe upset the boyars of the time. He disrupted a lot of cultural norms, for example. He dressed and acted in informal or Western ways. He didn't attend church services for many hours each day he he did it, he did attend church services and go to functions and things like that, but he didn't do it maybe as for as long or he wasn't as involved as people hoped that he would be. He also didn't rest after the midday meal, which was customary, and he also didn't hide his disdain for the low level of education among boyars. So maybe that's why after just a year as Tsar, false Dimitri falls victim to a boyar plot on May seventeenth, sixteen 1606. And after Dmitry's murder, the boyars put Vasily Shuisky, a man from an old boyar family on the throne one of their own one of their own exactly and this marked the beginning of a period of political crisis known in Russia as the time of troubles
2: so we've we've told you in the beginning there were going to be a few of these false Dmitrys. so now with this false dmitri the first out of the way opens the door for for some new imposters to come in uh, almost immediately after the nobles pulled off this plot murdering dmitri the tsar rumors started circulating that Dimitri had yet again escaped death. Maybe these rumors were started by his wife, maybe some other supporter, and it took a while for for anything to come of that, but eventually the second false Dimitri did show up in July 1607. He bore no physical resemblance to the first false Dimitri. He actually gained a following though. That didn't really seem to matter. He gained enough of a following, including Cossacks and Poles and Lithuanians and rebels to cause the new czar some real trouble, and um, it's it's pr- it gets even weirder than that, though, when you consider how far the support of this second false Dmitry went.
1: He did gain a lot of support. He gained control of southern Russia and set up headquarters at the village of Tushino, and that's why he's sometimes known as the Thief of Tushino. But the really crazy part here, to me at least, is that Marina. False Dimitri the First wife recognizes the second false Dimitri as her husband, which gives him credibility. I mean, people think, obviously, if this woman says this is her husband, wife it must be true. Right. So they stayed together. They had a son eventually who they named Ivan. And false Dimitri II was eventually killed by one of his own followers in 1610. No one to this day really knows who he was. He may have been a priest, son or maybe a baptized Jew called Bogdanko. So
2: with false Dimitri II out of the way... We have an opening for false Dmitry the third and on March 1611, a third false Dmitry does show up in Northwest Russia this time. But he I mean, I guess it was an old story by this point, he really didn't gain quite as much of a following and historians identify him as a former deacon. He did gain the alliance of uh, or the allegiance at least of some Cossacks and a couple of towns, but he was also murdered by his own supporters May 1612. That's the end of that immediate line of of Dimitris, but there were others that, that followed, not necessarily more Dimitris, but other pretenders to the throne. It was a pretty wild time. There were
1: many pretenders, apparently, during the 17th century in Russia, and there are several explanations for that out there. For example, Perry suggests that monarchism was the only political ideology that existed in early modern Russia. So leaders of rebellions or social movements or what have you, they were called the true czar and their enemies were considered traitors and that's kind of how they set up that dichotomy. Wouldn't work today, I don't think.
2: No, not <laughs> at all. I mean, I think the the widespread use of photography would have put a pretty fast end to this sort of thing. But Yeah, and DNA paternity
1: testing. <laughs> yeah,
2: you're not, Dimitri. But I mean, I, I do think that's that's interesting that the only avenue open for them was Forging some kind of legitimacy, saying that you are somehow related to the royal family in order to get a new political ideology or a new regime out there or or overthrow somebody you don't like. It's a it's a strange way about of going about things.
1: Yeah, I think comparing it to today, though, I think that's why we're so. Interested in this phenomenon is because it's just something we can't fathom. It seems so outrageous. How could something like this happen? Right.
2: So, we do love a good pretender story. And I know a lot of people have been suggesting Bonnie Prince Charlie lately. And he has seriously been on my list of podcast topics for. I think since I started in <laughs> History Today, did an article on him recently. So so he's still up there. But if you have any other pretender suggestions, too, they are so much fun to talk about. You can email them to us at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. You can leave us a comment in, in any of those ways.
1: And if you want to learn a little bit more about how royalty and royal families work, we do have an article called How Royalty Works on our website. You can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join
0: HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh?
1: Yep. You know what this
0: playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh my God. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool.